We're back to the Neil Haley Show and, you know, on uh, TV and for radio. But I'm excited to welcome to the New York Times bestselling author, Craig Carlson. Craig, how are you? The first time we chatted uh, years ago, you were just finishing up your book, right? It was like it was a first, the first launch of your book. And now, yes. now New York Times bestselling author. How's that feel? It feels great. In fact, I, I wore my uh, Cat Stella Contestant t-shirt. <laughs> you know the cats in, in uh, New York? Yeah. In yeah. honor of New York, I want to do a shout out to the cats. And uh, yeah. it feels amazing. I mean, it, it was a life changer, to tell you the truth. Um, a dream for a writer to be a New York Times bestseller. And so when that came off, I was, I was floored. So it's been great. It's been a great trip. Yeah, and we talked about the last time years ago when I interviewed you about the story, but the next, this next book coming out, Let Them Eat Pancakes, yeah. is more about a story of the reason why, right? The reason yeah. why the diner. The one was more about the diner. Yeah. This is the reason why, right? Yeah, I think that's perfect. Yeah, the first one, uh, Pancakes in Paris, was about the whole setting up of the diner and the whole adventure of starting from nothing, raising the money, finding location finding the ingredients, all the thing, uh, up until opening day and, and all the adventures of that. And this, for sure, is that it's, it's, it's the why, it's also the, the life that was set up and how this diner is a central point to everything life-changing that's happened to me since, you know, from, from meeting my future you know, spouse to so many different things. You know. Right, in, in that process. And then, again, the reason you got there is a shout out to te is it to a, um, your teachers because if you wouldn't have went and decided to visit Paris, this would never happen. Yeah, I mean, it actually starts with French itself. When I took the language for the first time in, in, in uh, junior high school, I never ever imagined going to college. No one in my family had. And then by the time I was in high school, I was in advanced French and my teacher, Mrs. Bucher, Madame Bucher, she said, uh, you know, you can get college credit for this at the University of Connecticut. And I was like, oh, wow. That was the first time I ever thought about going to college. So that was a life-changing moment. And then when I was at UConn, I ended up um, partaking in the junior year program in France. So coming over to France, thanks to my teacher, it never would have happened. And, uh, and then from there on in, every, the whole life's adventure happened with France, leading up to the diner, everything. So it goes back to the teachers for sure. And I should give a shout out to both of them. Mrs. O, my high school teacher is 85 years old. Oh my. And she came walking into the diner right here at this door, unannounced, total surprise, holding my book, my first book, saying, I'm looking for Craigie. <laughs> Can you oh, imagine that's this? That's so great. And, and I just happened to be in the diner that day, and I was like, Mrs. O, what are you doing here? She's like, I tracked you down, you know? And that's the kind of relationship I have with my teachers. And I hadn't seen her though in 35 years. so. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Oh my. So that was awesome to see. Now thinking about that process, thinking about, uh, you know, doing this and the steps of starting the diner, this now is more, you're going to really kind of really take us to France in this book, right? Yes. yes. I think this is like, uh, this is the armchair traveler book, you know, for those of uh, who can't travel right now, I know that's a, uh, there's a lot of limits to travel, especially international travel. Um, one reader said, I've just transported to France in this book. So it's like it, it could be you know, classified under travel almost, you know. And so um, I take you through the sites of Paris and how they and give you a different perspective on everything that you might be familiar with of Paris, you know, the different monuments and the different uh, snails, for example, escargot and what that means. And because there's a whole chapter in there about 
that I never knew there was a hunting season for snails, for example. Oh my. And my mother-in-law um, ended up one day when it was raining in Norm, and we were in Brittany, no, sorry, Burgundy, and all of a sudden she's like, oh, let's, let's start hunting snails. And before you know it, she had conducted 240 snails, uh, which you know she then prepared for a meal, and I had no idea the whole process of going, what goes into making snails. So, so it just kind of takes you deeper and deeper into the surface, below the surface of what you see as a traveler and, and takes you behind the scenes, just like with my diner, you know, so you can see what goes on as living here in Paris, living in France. So it's a definite travel book, a little bit more. It's telling the story, but it's more of a travel book. So when you go to visit Paris, you can, France, you could say, okay, I can utilize this for visiting Paris, this book. One, yeah, yeah. In fact, travel bans lifted, or not really a travel. I know people can travel places, which is surprising. You, you never think this during a pandemic, but once everyone it feels safe to travel again, this is a perfect book, right? You agree? Absolutely. Yeah, I would agree because at the very end, I decided, you know what, this book would, could really use is a is a little map in the beginning. And so I have a friend who's a, Jap a Japanese friend who's an illustrator, and she drew this beautiful map of Paris with all the different sites that are part of the book. So you can almost use it. I had one reader who said it's it's like a little guide with, for her, and she would look up each place on the internet, you know, that I reference, and learn more about it, more about its history, more about uh, you know just culturally what's important about it. And so and it, and I always tie it back into my life and the diner and the experience of the exchange that we have between the French and American cultures here, yeah. which is Yeah, and so that's fun. what I was gonna say, there's a misconception between the French and the English, right? And especially the United States and, Fran and, Paris and France. Tell me what that is, the French and the, like how they certain sorry. don't get along. Misconception between getting along. Yes. Like- Yeah, sorry, cut off for a second. So tell me. Yeah, I think there's there's certainly some there's still leftover rumors that the French are rude or they don't like Americans that kind of thing and it's not true at all. Um, I've spoken to so many of the French cafe owners here and other customers that are French and they really miss the Americans and they miss the tourists coming over here because it brings so much life to the city um, because Americans just fall in love with the it's it's we fall in love with their home you know so how could they not have a connection with us right and so. Uh, the misconceptions are that, 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 that they're rude or they don't like Americans or, you know, and, and even with this diner, I was told, oh, they won't eat American food. You know, they, they only think of, um, another big misconception was that burgers are the only thing that Americans eat. They thought they we eat that morning, noon and night, you know, and I introduced them to a whole other range of food, especially American breakfast, because they had, unless they traveled to America and stopped in the diner themselves, they didn't know what this was. And so... I offer that reverse, where they can travel to America by entering this restaurant. And so just like in my book, you can travel to France. So you see what I mean? It's a kind of interesting. Right. You think dynamic. about, see, and the thing I also think about with the French is it's probably the movies where we think that they don't get along with us, right? Yes. Certain movies or TV shows always portray French's root. Yeah, did you, you ever see uh, uh, Chevy Chase's European Vacation? That's what I was thinking of that one yes. also. Modern Family, they came up with some of that stuff when Modern Family came into town to film uh, France, if they were in France. When they, yeah, were, yeah. they, they did a trip to... Uh, they were, in fact, because the crew came here. Some of the oh, crew really? came here. They came yeah, here? And, yeah, here. in fact, that was a gift from the, um, from the producers for all the, the crew that had been there so long. They flew them all over to France. They could have used crew here in Paris, but they used the American crew. To thank them for uh, so you the got years. to meet this the cast. 
and stuff. Not the cast, just some of the crew. Yeah. You know, the but they the were scenes, filming yeah. right near here, right? Yeah, near. yeah, very close. Yeah, Notre Dame is very, very close. Uh, the Seine is three blocks from here, so yeah. So I'm a huge Modern Family fan. So that's where I would think of that one, the latest one I saw about France. But you know, you're right, but you're right. Um, European vacation is yes. like the big one. And so yeah. when I was uh, in French Canada, where it was like really almost all the way to the border of, of the end of Canada, uh, where, you know, it's nowhere lands where it was, they were speaking French. I didn't have those problems either. But I think it's because French is a difficult language. A little yes. bit, you, you know, people talk about, you know, Spanish, but yeah. French in a way can seem rude the way they speak. Mm -hmm. Would you say that could be another? I would, and I would too, because they're very reserved as well. So there was a, a moment when I was learning French and living over here as a student when I thought they were being sarcastic or a little, I don't know how to say it, but just maybe a little impolite. But in fact, they were, be, they were very funny underneath. They were laughing inside, but they just weren't showing it. You know, because they're very reserved. And then I, then I got that and I said, oh, they're joking. And then I jumped right in and into that repartee that they that you do with the French. So that it's that, and 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 also they're also very formal in a lot of ways. You know, when you walk into a place, you always have to say bonjour. You always have to say au revoir when you leave. If not, they will go, oh how rude. You know, they think we'll be rude that we're rude. You know, and so um, I'm always reminding Americans: be sure to say merci, au revoir, bonjour all the time. <laughs> you know, you can never say it enough because it's those little formalities, those little you know those niceties that, that, that make life really pleasant here. You know, they acknowledge you. Right. So, and then yeah. when, you, when you talk about the, uh, the, the food, the food, is that in the book too? You know, you're talking about pancakes, but you talk about other, yes. you, said you, talk about, you talked about certain foods, but really get yes. to see the French cuisine and understanding it more. Absolutely. There's a wonderful chapter in there about the Tour d'Argent, which is one of the most famous restaurants in the world, the Silver Tower, which is a few blocks from here. And How many times I, are you getting to eat there? I've been there now three times, I have to say. But the first, the, what's great about the, in, this, in the book is I had a head chef. She was a classically trained chef, an American, who came to France. She ended up working in my diner. So here she was used to doing very fancy food, and here she is slinging you know, yeah. burgers and all that. And when she left, I said, I'll have to take her out. And so she said, I want to, I want to go to the Tour d'Argent. So we went there and did the whole, and there's a whole chapter about the, the duck and how they make it and the whole experience inside the place. Some place that I never would have imagined as a kid in Connecticut growing up that I would have ever have eaten there, right? And there's a twist on that. Um, about 10 years after we were open, the owner called me up and he said, uh, the whole staff were doing a big staff party staff meeting and they all voted to have your restaurant cater it. So next thing you know, my diner is catering, you know, a Michelin star restaurant with burgers and wraps and, you know, everything uh, from the diner. And uh, it was just so interesting just to imagine them all in that fancy place having American right. food, you know. So it just, it just shows that exchange that we had again. You know? So, again, your book is available on Amazon. And then yeah. you can also check it out in uh, independent bookstores because you're really big about that, the ones that are back yes. opening up again. again because yeah, they, it's called... It's, yeah. yeah, it's called Let Them Eat Pancakes, and if you can, go to your local independent bookstore, your neighborhood bookstore. If not, Amazon or Barnes & Noble, it's available as well. And as we talked about off-air, you're looking also to write other books, not just these books, right? You're in the works of maybe writing a novel, right? Especially being in Yeah, Paris. that's a little secret of mine is to maybe one day do a novel. I mean, I, I have some thoughts about that for sure. But you uh, stay busy with this. Too. Are you looking to have more of these pancake houses in France, move to other places as well, 
not just Paris, to open up another um, one? There's a lot of uh, people ask me all the time. I had customers from Belgium just last week, and they said, when are you going to open one here? South of France, Italy. I would love to, but I would have to have someone do it. And someone who knows, I have no business degree. And when you get into chain restaurants and things like that, it's a whole nother, you know, level. But I would be up for it. Uh, the financial sure. people saying, hey, this wasn't hurt by the pandemic. You figured it out ways of surviving. Contact yeah. Craig today. You never know. You have a great business opportunity. Awesome. All right. So yeah. best place we can find information. You have a website too, right? People can go to? Yeah. So my website is craigcarlsonauthor.com. And that's my Facebook as well. So you can see all the upcoming events we have. Uh, for example, September 9th, we're going to be doing a Zoom um, with Shakespeare and Company out of Manhattan. And so you can follow that. You can sign up and uh, join the Zoom. And I'll be talking about the book and doing Q&A and all that. So it'll be live. Awesome. Thanks, Craig, for stopping by. I appreciate it. And best of luck. And wait to hear in the next business venture you have uh, regarding books or who knows, or another a restaurant chain. People, investors, contact Craig today. I'll take it. Yeah, care. bring your checkbooks. All right. See you later. Okay. See Bye -bye. you later. Thanks. All right. You're watching the Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley Show, and I'm really excited about this guest because this guest is kind of going to really explain what songwriting's about. I talked about before in different episodes and different things, how I covered Songland and talked to other songwriters, of celebrity songwriters, to people who just write songs and, and the process. But this guy knows exactly the process. So I'm excited to welcome him, um, Billy Seidman. Billy, thanks for calling, author of Elements of Song Craft. How are you, Billy? I'm well, Neil. Wonderful to, uh, to be with you. Thanks for inviting me on the show today. Absolutely. Let's kind of go right and break down. Give me your background as a, in, in music. And all sure. That. Well, I started off as a New York session guitar player and uh, fortunate to get signed to RCA Records uh, publishing firm when I was uh, 20 and worked with artists such as Irene Cara, Vicky Sue Robinson, uh, Evelyn Champagne King back in the day, uh, you know, played on Broadway and uh, went on the road with Asher and Simpson. And so basically New York was a wonderful hotbed of, of talent and uh, dreams. And I uh, was fortunate to be a part of that and to grow my skill set there. So very interesting. You talk about, so you were on Broadway involved in a lot of stuff in Broadway in New York? Yeah, well, I played guitar. I was in the, I was a session musician. And so I'd play uh, guitar at different shows um and as i said went out on the road with asher and simpson but in new york at that time there were so many sessions and uh, you know a really vibrant life for uh for people to learn their trade and learn how to be a songwriter and i was fortunate enough to get uh, uh picked up by rca and uh really learned my craft and uh, uh but interestingly it was years later when i moved to nashville about 95 that i really started to learn some things that i I should have known, or I, uh, but I was just kind of blown away by what was going on in Nashville and and the depth and the quality of the writing uh, of uh, the writers in Nashville, which is no secret to anybody who's been paying attention for you know for 80 years. Um, but again, I was uh, so impressed with the the skill of the writers there that I really started it became my passion to kind of figure out well what was driving why is, was it that after you know, 10 seconds of listening, my life was in the balance. My heartache and joy were pouring out of me listening to these new heroes of mine down in Nashville. And what I discovered was uh, the reason the songs were so good is that they really knew what they were writing about. They, they understood the core emotion at the heart of, 
each song and they built those songs to last based on the emotions and then maybe a dozen or more so craft skills that they've been using and that I'd say the best writers in the world have been using for a few hundred years perhaps even back to obviously librettists and operas and uh, you know maybe you know middle ages so uh, I've tried to put it all together in my book the elements of songcraft I don't know where it's shown up there, there we go yeah um, and um, so um, you know, it's really a manifesto for writers, young developing writers to get organized around the tools that the best songwriters today and the best songwriters historically have been using to win mass audiences for their music. So the art of, a, of songwriting, there's a specific way of writing. And I think, it, I guess in any type of writing, you have to think, you have to brainstorm. You can't just go out and write something. You could start putting things together but there has to be a process if you're going to be a successful songwriter. I think so. I mean, I think every major songwriter who has success has developed their own process. You know, they, they have their songwriting heroes. They've studied their methods. They've, uh, they follow the rules. They've broken the real rules and they, they find their own unique vocabulary to write songs. And, uh, and I'd say one of the big um, differences between a, a very, um, a seasoned songwriter and a developing songwriter is that the seasoned songwriter has basically built in songwriting athletic body and mind. They can basically sit in a room for four or five hours and focus on how to solve a musical problem or a lyrical problem to make the song seem effortless. You know, the, the goal in songwriting is to take all the thinking out of uh, the listener's ear and replace it with feeling. And how do you do that uh, for a three and a half minute song? Yeah, you can't just go and bam, there there it happens. You have to really think about it and certain things and stuff like that. So in the book, it kind of explains how you should write a song. Give me some, yeah. without giving away the whole book, give me some uh, ideas yeah. that songwriters can figure out. Well, I'm going to do something right now. I'm going to go back to my, my studio here for a minute. And uh, I'm just going to sh share with your listeners one of the strategies that um, that are in the book. And they'll, they're going to understand it immediately. Um, there's a strategy I call the problem solution setup. So in many, many songs, and everybody kind of knows this information, but I'm going to frame it in a way that when you hear it in, in songs, you'll go like, oh, that's the problem solution setup. The verse is the problem. Carol King's uh, You Got a Friend, great example. When you're down and troubled and you need some love and care, and nothing, nothing's going right. Billy, I lost you. Yeah, you lost me? Yeah, go ahead, go back yeah. here. I don't know what happened. Anyway, okay, I'm sorry yeah. about that. But uh, yeah. the, the point is, is that you've, the verse is the problem when the skies above you are dark, and, and then the chorus is the solution. You just called out my name, and you know wherever I am, I'll come running. So that's one of the, uh, the, the beautiful thing about that. Uh, technique or strategy is that you don't have to guess where your uh, verse is going to go, your second verse. It's going to get dark again. When the skies above you are dark and full of clouds. So you know you're going to go back to the problem for a verse and you're going to go to the solution in the chorus. So that's one minor um, strategy in the book that's, uh, you know, again, what we're doing in songwriting is we're trying to have all these distinctions to basically guide our emotions, our human heart to explain an event. You know, you write a song because something happened and you're interested and, or you need to uh, express it. The problem solution. So it's just like telling a story. Songwriting is telling a story. 
if you're not telling a story in songwriting, you're not, you're, it's not, people aren't going to get the song. Well, that's, that's certainly true. Uh, but it's just like any, any literary form. You've got a hero, you've got a villain, you've got, uh, you know, you've, you've got, um, a beginning, middle and an end. Uh, you've got good and bad. You're basically looking, how do you, in, how do you make contrast a part of your the fabric of you writing songs so the audience quote unquote can see their life in it if you're not communicating to the audience what kind of song they're listening to why are they you know songs are like trains uh, they don't go roaming around the countryside they've got tracks they're laid down they're going to a destination the audience will get on that train if they know where the destination is is that is it that destination uh, a, a new love song is it a breakup song is it a song of reassurance? So I've gotten organized around training people to write songs based on what I call creative GPS, which is four vectors of knowing um, four pieces of information, your intention, what do you want to have happen by writing that song, uh, core emotion, what emotion is the song typically written on, which is kind of your basic emotions, joy, hope, loss, grief, regret, uh, swagger is a big one for attitude songs, party songs, celebration songs. Um, and then uh, song category, is it a breakup song? Is it a makeup song? And then finally, what I call the fourth vector is audience tracking. What craft tools are you using to make sure the audience stays on that train, stays in that song with you to see their life in it for three and a half minutes? How challenging is it to have the right, to get the right song that the audience likes, especially when there's so many songs out there? That's a great question, Neil. And what I'd say is, is that you've got to figure out how to marry surprise to familiarity there's so many songs out there that if you can't find a surprising way uh i was listening to a brad paisley song the other day and, and i think the title is a uh, uh, there's no i in beer you know so it's a <laughs> you know, it's, it's it's a team effort you know so let's you know it's a drinking song you know they're drinking they've been writing yeah. drinking, drinking songs have been written for hundreds and hundreds of years and you know so the inventiveness of 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 figuring that out um is a good example of uh writing songs that have um that combination of surprise and familiarity and then yeah and it's interesting when you go through that process i had someone on from the bachelor that's a singer now and she talked about she wrote her song in a uber when she was mad at her boyfriend and just wrote it in seconds just like on a piece of paper and then there you go and then her game became a song but it depends who the person is too right and that helps in the process so if they're the do you think the singer and songwriter need to marry together or do you think there's definitely place for lots of just songwriters that don't have that are not sing are not performing it well that used to be the case uh you know, I, I love singing and I, you know, and I'm, I'm an okay singer, but I work with some of the best singers in the world. So I'm looking for them to deliver the beautiful sonics of what they can, the sound of their voice and the range of that they have. Um, I think it's uh, um, in maybe some respects much more difficult today for a pure songwriter to find commercial success. Um, but then again, uh, songs are typically written in the pop format of you know three four five writers around them so someone in that wow. wolf pack is going to be you know have the right voice to uh, deliver the song especially when you're discovering them as i talked about that show songland where it's basically they're finding the person the performer to they find the famous performers to perform that song they wrote because a lot of times it's as, unless you're getting it make it and you all writing your own music it happens but now lots of 
creatives once they make it they got to figure out new songs after that right to keep the train going and selling more tracks and more rec and more uh lps yeah. and stuff right it's it's a process because it's just like yeah. that book you write one book you better write five best-selling books or yeah. you become irrelevant yeah i'll say i'm a i'm a big fan of Songland. i think it's great i think it pulls back the cover on what actual producers and great songwriters do you know so many of the world's top producers are really good musicians they're really good players uh good singers you know they've got great mechanics and they've got great tools and they really understand uh the principles i've just been talking about like hey what song category are we working in what emotion are we working in how are we going to get the audience to to understand what that is in 10 15 seconds so um i think they do a great service of showing kind of peeling the the uh the uh, the covers back on the uh, creative side of uh songwriting for sure well they're showing how they're designing dresses and designers are famous now with like with a uh, project runway they needed to come up with something songwriting so it was a genius idea yeah because well, they, you're gonna it, have yeah. They've had other shows that have been, you know, less than tantalizing, but this one, they got it right. They, uh, they, they put some great people. And, uh, and I also like, you know, it's a wonderful, wonderful community, the songwriting community in terms of like co-writing with other people. And uh, um, especially in the Nashville community, you know, people are uh, really gracious and uh, it's wonderful to, I remember uh, one guy was getting an award uh, with his partner at BMI um at for for a song that they wrote that made number one and the guy basically said well uh, that was the day that uh that uh, i went out for pizza you wrote that whole tune didn't you john <laughs> you know i just love the graciousness of like people could could basically say that without having to grab the spotlight yeah. uh, it was a it was a it's a beautiful town that way people are are i think very very thoughtful and gracious to each other so what would be a famous songwriter that someone else performed the song to make it successful like what would you where would you bring up what? well i'd say uh, there's a guy uh named you presswood who's a very famous uh he's he lives uh i think out on the east end of long island but trisha yearwood made a song of his called the song remembers when very famous and it's a beautiful evocative song I would, i'll t say something else um it's interesting if you think about it songs they fulfill many roles but typically songs you know they either entertain us or they inspire us so is it an entertainment song, 24 karat magic in the air, you know, or, you know, it's getting hot in here, you know, entertainment songs, you yeah. know, or is it the wind beneath my wings, um, yes. a, a song uh, that's based on inspiration. Um, so I think these are the things that great songwriters do. They, they figure out what kind of song they're writing and then they have enough uh, history writing good songs to basically carve it out so it's something the audience can really see their life in without having to think about it quickly in 10 15 seconds favorite decade for songwriting um, i gotta tell you man i'm such a fan of of the 30s 40s 50s 60s 90s i like what's going on today i mean i think it's inventive terrell swift's new record uh the one it's a beautifully evocative well-written song um and uh so you know i'm a supporter of all people who want to find a way to express what's in their heart um i just encourage them to uh to try to beat their heroes you know to try to aim that high learn yeah. the strategies their heroes use and uh, uh and then stay in the process and uh and just aim really high about communicating what's in their heart fantastic now you pick up the elements of songcraft where uh, all major booksellers are selling it. Amazon, 
Target, Barnes and Nobles, Walmart, wherever you buy books, it's everywhere. So I appreciate people picking it up and letting me know um, what they think. I'm easy to find, uh, Billy at songartsacademy.com. That's my uh, training uh, academy for songwriters looking to get better. You can find me. I do workshops, uh, I do private sessions, and uh, you know I'm currently working on, on projects with some major producers. and. Um, just really enjoying the whole ride of uh, being a songwriter, musician, producer, and now author. <laughs> yeah, and it's exciting. And the next step, right? That next step in song uh, where you never know when you could be have the biggest song written ever. You could come up with that one, especially during the virus. Is there something they could come out with to say that? I had Don McLean on, and we tried to say, are you going to write another one that's going to be with the pandemic? He said, oh, no, I'm not bringing back another American Pie. When I interviewed Don, I said, okay, I got it now, man. But Well, I So come up with something for sure. All right, so I appreciate you coming by, Billy. Thank you so much. Great to be here, Neil. Stay well. All right, you too. Bye-bye. You're watching and listening to Neil Haley's show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Honoring this type of action or movement, it's incredibly counterproductive. And so I think we have to have one common voice. And that's what the 3 for 30 campaign is all about. Yeah, it's definitely. And that is what the 3 for 30 campaign is about, is just uh, just let's go ahead and make sure that we um, are able to um, make things work in its best way. So let's kind of you know break down specifically enough a, a situation and talk about specifically the importance of this. What will happen if we really focus on doing this campaign? Right. Well, let's look at what ha- what's already happened in other countries, in other places that have already done this, Neil. And, you know, they've had immense success. Um, all they did different than what we're doing now is they masked more. They were more vigilant about some of the precautions that we're putting out there. They don't have a vaccine, and we don't have a vaccine right now. And that's okay. We can still beat this virus together. But I think we got to focus on what our priorities are. And uh, one of the things with the 3 for 30 campaign is to clarify the messaging that's coming out. Uh, the CDC is an incredible organization. It's a world-class organization. But they have 28 or more recommendations for everyday people. And it's hard for uh, us to wrap our head around something that complicated. And so what our program does, it breaks it down to three very specific asks. And it asks people to do these things for 30 days. And I think within a very short period of time of just a few weeks, we're going to be able to make a huge impact on this. Absolutely. So, and if we're able to do that, it's a big thing. And you're involved with some pretty interesting people for this campaign, aren't you? Well, yeah, we're trying to, you know, amplify uh, the voice that we have. And, you know, this is not, this is absolutely a grassroots effort, which means that uh, everybody that has a voice needs to speak up. This is the time that you want to do that. And if we all come together, I think we could definitely defeat this. So we've reached out. We've reached out to people on both sides of the uh, party. We've reached out to celebrities. We've reached out to athletes. Uh, we've reached out to everyday people, to our patient base. And everybody, I think, has a voice in this. And this is the time that you want to be heard. This is the point where it makes the greatest impact, uh, I think, on this uh, disease curve. So uh, the time to do it is now. 
the time is definitely to do it is now. And uh, let's give some takes for people looking at specifically enough wearing the mask and go a little deeper into that process of when to wear it and when not to wear it. I think uh, the way you should think about the mask is a little bit different than the way uh, it has been messaged. The mask protects the mask wearer. So when you wear that mask, you are less likely to get this horrible disease. And I think, uh, you know, I think we need to be very clear about that. And, uh, you know, wearing a quality mask when you're in close proximity with other people is incredibly beneficial. And, you know, we draw on our own experience as healthcare providers. We deal with um, COVID-19 patients almost on a daily basis. Uh, sometimes we know that a patient has COVID-19. Sometimes we don't know that they have COVID-19. And, you know, we are still taking care of them. The incidence of infection in healthcare workers is lower than the general population. And the real reason behind that is because we wear that mask. That mask is that final barrier that protects us uh, against this infection, and it works. And uh, we, we, we are living examples of that. We want to try to amplify that message and get that message out. So if you want to be protected against this virus, you have to wear a mask. And if you're not going to be wearing a mask, you have to keep your distance. You have to be greater than six feet away from others. That's the only level of protection that we have right now as far as prevention goes. All right. Let's kind of go into one that I don't think a lot of people are doing. Washing hands are definitely doing, but taking a temperature that really gauges things before things go bad, especially if you're talking about people that are letting people into different events or different activities, even to visit people. Right. Sure. And keep in mind, Neil, sometimes people are getting sick, but they don't know that they're sick yet. So they're in that phase of the disease where they are infectious, they can pass the disease on to other people, and yet they don't feel bad yet. They don't really know that they're sick just yet. The thermometer is the easiest way to identify one of the earliest signs of infection, and that's a low-grade fever. So if you have a temperature of 100 degrees Fahrenheit, you shouldn't go into work. You shouldn't go visit your relatives. You should self-isolate at home. And that's also true with your uh, house members. So anyone in your house, if, you're, if you think that you might be sick, they should not go to work either because they could similarly transmit this disease when asymptomatic. Yeah. And uh, so, identifying when they do have a, a temperature, what should we do? Especially if we have family members that have that temperature and are really, really asymptomatic and really don't have many symptoms. Well, the first step is to go ahead and contact either your health care provider or the Department of Health and get tested. So you want to have early testing so that you can find out for sure whether you have this or whether you don't have it, you have something else. And uh, the health care provider can direct, uh, you know, can also order additional testing as necessary and as required. The other important aspect is you want to seclude yourself so that you don't pass this around to others. And so what that means is self-isolation at home, not go, you know, letting your employer know, not going to work. And that helps prevent the spread of this disease. And that's key, the, the help uh, stop the, the spread of this disease in so many ways. And what, what do you think the outlook it looks like right now, doctor? 
the outlook for the yeah, disease. Yes, it, the depends disease. On, it depends on our actions. I, you know, I think the good news here is that we could all pull together. You know, we can win this battle. We can definitely curb this uh, virus and get our lives back, get our businesses opened up. But I think we have to speak with one voice. I think we have to be very clear about the messaging. And I think we need to uh, spell out what our expectations are of our people. I don't think at the end of the day that mandates will get you very far because you're going to always have people that are going to resent mandates. The urge to want to put on a mask and do the right things has to be an internal one because you want to preserve your own good health and your well-being and also the well-being of the people that surround you. And I think that's the impetus behind doing these three tasks is you know, it preserves your health and your well-being and also the ones that are around you. Great points. Oh, my gosh. Exactly what is needed. And, I, and, I, and I'm a big advocate as well. Of this. I want to see businesses back open up. I want to see all these different things. But I sure as heck want this to disappear because I want the new normal to not be the new normal forever. And if we don't do these things, it will be the new normal forever. And we'll constantly go from we're going to start things up till it's going to stop and that's as a country we have to band together to protect people and look at it like do you want to live like this for the next three years or do we really want to make those changes so that we don't live like this for a long time there is nobody i know that will argue in favor of closing everything down forever that's just not in our character that's just not who we are our goal is to keep everything open in a safe and responsible way. And I think the way you do that is you see what has worked and you emulate that and you message around that. And that's what the 3 for 30 campaign is all about. Um, you know, we encourage your listeners to go into our website. Our website is uh, rulesforcovid.com. That's rules, the number four, covid.com. And all of the steps uh, for keeping uh, our businesses open are spelled out on that website. So we have a plan for where we go from here. But the first step is to contain the exponential expansion of this infection. And we could definitely do that within 30 days. If people step up, if their voices are heard, if they're able to convince others near them to do this, I think we have a really, really good shot at um, controlling this pandemic. The question is, how do you get through to the naysayers? As you may know, most people in this country are masking and uh, keeping socially distant and washing hands and doing all these other things. But the problem is you have a significant fraction that is not. And the messaging question is, how do you get to those people? How do you reach uh, the people that say, no, the virus is not real. No, I will not wear a mask because of my First Amendment rights. And I think the way you reach those people is you go through people that are close to them to try to convince them. This might be family members. It might be loved ones that are part of the campaign. It might be celebrities that that individual looks up to. It might be musicians. It might be athletes that they look up to. But, you know, this is the time for those individuals to speak clearly and vociferously about what needs to be done in order to get the message through, not just to some of the people, but to everybody that's going to be affected. All right. Well, fantastic. Thanks for calling. And I think this is such a great uh, story. And I appreciate you coming on the show. 
Oh, it's my pleasure. And if your listeners want to participate, I would encourage them to use the hashtag 3 for 30. That's the number 3 and the word 4, F-O-R, the number 30 in their social media posts and uh, tag us that way. We'll be happy to have everybody on board. All right. Thank you, doctor. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. You're listening to Neil Haley's show. We'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley show. And you know what? These guys, I was talking off air with them and they have such a great story. And as I said, they're a perfect couple, a couple that is going to be exciting and enjoyable. And we see them in their studio right now. So I'm excited to welcome the program, Eve and Steve Schaub. How are you guys doing, Eve and Steve? Great. Hi, Neil. Thank you. Hi, Neil. I'm doing fantastic. And we're doing great. Again, quarantine, Ali, and you guys were out, and we'll talk a little bit about that before. But let's go to the backgrounds first. First with Eve and learn a little bit about who Eve is, a New York Times bestselling author, bestselling author, who in, in her background, and then we'll find out about Steve's and how you guys connected together for this project, for these projects. So I've been a word person for a long time and I have written uh, two books. One is called Year of No Sugar and the other is called Year of No Clutter. I'm currently working on my third book, which is called Year of No Garbage. And in each one of these books, there are memoirs that talk about our whole family going for a whole year without one of these things that we normally think of as being sort of intrinsic to modern life. So I'm currently writing a blog, and if people want to check out what it's like to live with no garbage and be zero waste, they can go to eveshop.com. And I will, spoiler alert, it's not easy, and there are a lot of funny stories. (laughs) So again, so you're the author, and Steve, you are the? I'm the photographer, the visual artist. Um, I'm originally from the Midwest. I was in the Marine Corps, served in uh, Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm and went to RIT, met Eve uh, at RIT. Uh, we actually met in the Southwest on a photographic It was a school uh, camping trip. Yeah, and I needed a ride home back to Rochester and she had room in her car. And next thing I know, two weeks later, we're dating and uh, nine months later, I asked her to marry me. So- oh, it was faster than that. Might've been. Um, <laughs> I- I've been a working artist for 30 years. I work uh, almost exclusively, almost, I actually work exclusively in film and hybrid technologies. So a blending of film and digital technologies. And even I have always worked together. Like she's written intros to different books that I've done. Yes. And I've done photographs for her. For we PR. always sort of bounce things off yeah. each other, you know, but, but we haven't actually collaborated, collaborated like to make a, yeah. a, a work of art until about a year and a half ago. About a year and a half ago. We decided to team up and form even Steve. See, that's fantastic. And then come up with that. Because first of all, you were doing your own projects and then it happened. But let's talk about how you met. That's an interesting story. Who wants to go with that one? <laughs> so, so we're on the camping trip. Yeah. This is sponsored by the school. And this is 1995. I love to describe this to people because it's like, imagine 20 photographers all sitting around a campfire and everybody's taking pictures of everybody else. I was at the time studying photography also. And, uh, you know, everybody's smoking, everybody's drinking. <laughs> And it, it was one of the most uh, wonderful experiences uh, to be in the landscape and creating work with so much creativity going on around you all the time. And so that was, that was the atmosphere we were in when we met. And everybody had to do a project. You had to have a certain amount of work. You're going to tell us. So Eve actually made, made hand-bound book. books. Right? I have one of the copies. And this is everybody who was on the trip. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's great. So, you saved all that. 
oh, I love this thing. Every now and then I'll just flip through it because it was such a magical time. So even then, yeah. here I am, I'm a photography major, but I'm still trying to make books. Yeah. So <laughs> I always love incorporating words with yeah. imagery. And so that's how, you know, we end up uh, collaborating together today. Yeah. Well, see, that's an interesting thing that a lot of marketing people don't understand how to incorporate words with imagery. Uh, that's one of the things a lot of times either you don't have the right image or you don't have the right text. Putting those two things together is going to make magic where people are really interested in it. And many people don't understand that process. And the more photography to video and words are key. You need yeah. both because yeah. some people like words, some people like visual. And yeah. you have to connect those two together in marketing or whatever you're doing or things to make it attractive. So the idea, who came up with it? Steve or Eve to work together? You know, we, we had both kicked it around, but I had written the idea of Eve and Steve several years ago. I think you get to take that. Yeah, and, and so I was doing an exhibition that I was curating uh, called Rutland Real and Imagined that was in Rutland, Vermont. And it was sort of reimagining the city that kind of gets sort of a, a little bit of it a bad, a bad rap, rap sometimes. in Vermont. Yeah. Um, and so... Uh, we, I, we wanted to reimagine the city, and so we invited a bunch of different artists. Yeah. And then you said, well, you know, the show's kind of experimental. Why don't we do an experimental piece for it as well? Yeah. How about I'll do some imagery and you can write on it? And we made a piece that was like 20 feet wide. Uh, it was an in-camera collage on film on this beautiful Japanese paper. And then Eve wrote all these imaginary stories about Rutland. And what was so great is people would come into the show, and, and the piece is, uh, it isn't logical. It, it's because it's this collage on film, it isn't like a real place. So people yeah. are first off in their mind trying to figure out what they're looking at. And then they're reading. Trying to place it. Right. And then they're but, reading but the text. Yeah. And then you're reading their text. Yeah. And they're <laughs> treating the text as if it's literal history. And they're going, is this true? And I'm going, no. no. The title of the show is <laughs> Real and Imagined. Right. So, so they were, some of the stories were very silly. And, and we had and, such a good time doing that Yeah, show. it was terrific. It was very yeah. playful. It was a lot of fun. And then from there, we just kept working and we were invited to make a piece for the Rokeby Museum, which is the best uh, documented underground railroad site. Um, we made a massive 30 foot piece for that. And in that case, we went completely the yeah. other direction and we used only historic documentation. They have a huge archive of written materials. 15,000 letters. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. thank goodness I didn't have to read 15,000 yeah. letters. I, I worked with the curator at the Rokeby museum in Ferrisburg, Vermont, yep. and they were able to sort of give me, here's the greatest hits, here's the stuff that we think is the most significant yep. or meaningful, wow. comb through it, and was able to include quotes from letters and diaries and sketchbooks and newspapers from throughout the history of this uh, fascinating homestead, which was a site on the Underground Railroad, but also had a lot of other history yep. associated with it as well. So we touched on all those things throughout the and, piece. And we primarily make three kinds of work. We make pieces that are based on history, site-inspired, or that are a narrative. And sometimes it's a combination Meaning of the fiction. three. So right. sometimes it's a little bit fiction, and, but a lot of the facts are actually accurate. So yeah. we get to have it both ways. We've done pieces on Robert Frost. This is his 100th anniversary of coming to Vermont. We've done Calvin Coolidge, Calvin Coolidge um, president from Vermont. We've done a lot of different historical pieces and, and, and narrative pieces from Cape Cod and all over. So it's been a lot of fun the last year and a half. It seems like it. A lot of uh, a blast in so many ways. And the, the way the connectivity, so every time, so that's where you decided to have the museum, right? To show your art. art yes. That, well, so it wasn't that, until the pandemic 
that yeah. we decided that we needed to go bigger and we needed to go outside. Up until the pandemic uh, really exploded, we were doing these works for, you know, to last for generations, <laughs> making them very stable archivally. Yep. There would be a lot of text uh, written rather small, so you'd have to get up very close to the artwork and maybe spend a bunch of time with it if you really wanted to read it all. Yeah. Um, and then when the pandemic hit, we were, we were frustrated because there were a lot of things that were canceled and put on hold indefinitely. And we said, okay, we, we still feel really the, this urgency to get our work out to people now more than ever. And it really became sort of a love letter to our community. So we did an experiment. We made one piece that was 10 feet wide and we had so much fun making it. It, it took us a couple of days. We were just so excited producing this piece. And the response was tremendous from well, the community. So we installed it in the hayfield yes. across the street from our house, which was just sitting there empty, yeah. waiting for us to do something with it. So now when you drive down our road, if you slow down, you can experience this artwork. You don't even have to get out of your car. And now there are four pieces in the field. Now we have four pieces. The largest piece being 32 feet wide. Um, some of the, one of the pieces is over 13 feet tall. And so we've installed four pieces in our field. And we've also installed one piece at the Bennington Museum in Bennington, Vermont, on their front lawn. So we were calling it drive-by artwork. Okay. And, and our, our younger daughter, who's 15, she goes, Mom, drive-by is not a good thing. You yeah. <laughs> <laughs> are like, oh, come on. I said, yeah, but it, it, you know, it's, so, so then we came up with the idea of calling it Monuments to Now. Right. And the, the idea of the controversy going on about monuments you know, what if we had monuments that were for right now? And they were only going to last a very short period yes. of time. They're so, temporary. Yeah, so the passage of time isn't going to recontextualize stuff, that they speak to the moment. Yes. And, and, and that's something that we're very much into in the work. And so that's, that, I think thinking about it that way has really allowed us to also think how else we could engage well, with these And works. there are so many extremely important, pressing, intense issues that are flying around right now from pandemic and isolation. Right to the environment and global warming, to uh, race riots going on, uh, demonstrations, Black Lives Matter. I mean, you know, and, and me too. I mean, there, there's so much going on. And it's like, we need to, you know, incorporate this in a way that makes sense. Yeah. Wow, okay. A lot of different <laughs> things that you bring to the table, but the shift, you guys, when you made that shift, then you said we got to do the online shift as well, not just the museum but yeah. to make it available to everyone, not just that people was, who want. That was a big thing for us. Um, so on evensteve.com, it's Eve with the letter N, steve.com, we document extensively all the work that we make. We understand, you know, we feel very strongly that seeing yeah. our work in person is the, best the very best way to experience it. And that art helps people make sense of the world. Yeah. So right now, more than ever, people need art. So if people can come to Vermont, and come to 671 River Road, they can see our artwork in person. They can drive by, they can walk the Not field. everybody can We do have mode pads <laughs> that they can come, but if they can't, there is the Next online experience. And we, and we document, you know, the creation of the works, yeah. the installation of the works. We've got videos, we've got stills. Yeah. We, um, we also Eve usually, yes, text, we'll usually do a, a short video of me reading the text. Um, so there's all different ways for people to interact with and experience the artwork. Really, so what, how much? How many different artifacts are on the on the uh, our artworks are on the website? 
Oh. Right now, I, I think it's probably close to 15 pieces. And we have a backlog of pieces that we actually need to get to. Sure. But that you need to write for, actually. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've already done my part. She's got to start doing the writing. But, you know, we're always making work. I mean, you know, we're, we're constantly thinking about projects. You know, most projects that we do that are like museum-type pieces, you don't take anywhere from four to eight, eight weeks, sometimes 12 weeks, depending on how complicated the piece is. The Monuments to Now piece are very much very reactionary work. So we try to just make it happen, you know, if we can. And as, as quickly as yeah. possible. The most recent piece is the largest one. Yeah. It's, I always forget the, the measurement. It's 32 feet. 32 feet. So we got the whole family out yeah. in this hay field. <laughs> it's like an Amish barn raising. Like, and there's a great two, video of this on the website of yeah. us pushing this thing up. And it, it, it takes it a whole day. very dramatic. Yeah. <laughs> it's enormous. And from the road, it doesn't look like as big as it really is till you get up. Well, that's the thing that's interesting. As, as an artist who's worked for the last 30 years in galleries and institutions, where you've got controlled lighting, controlled temperature, and all of that, when you put it out in a field, and all of a sudden, like right now, we're having a thunderstorm. It's so cool seeing your artwork in the rain. It's raining on our yeah. art. Yeah, and I'm going to see it in a <laughs> snowstorm, and I see it at night. I see it by full moon, and, and I see it in the fog. And that, and, and also the scale. You know, when you make a 20, 30 foot piece and you try to find an art institution to put it in, right. that's a good size amount of wall that you're asking for. But when you put 20, 30 feet in a huge hay field. Hayfield doesn't care. Hayfield doesn't care and it's <laughs> not that big. It becomes very small, very quick. Wow. And like I said, you could be, the way you're able to intertwine photographs with writing, what kind of project would you guys want to work on next? Is there one, is there one that you're brainstorming right now to do? Well, do you want to talk about the one we just came from? We were just, we just got home today. Just, just. From being on a camping trip in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. And we were photographing for a work that we're going to be displaying yep. in uh, Burlington. In uh, November, starting in, in November. In the fall. Yep. Uh, and it's all about Alexander Twilight, who yep. was the first um, uh, uh, man of African-American ancestry to graduate from college. He did that at, from middle College, yeah. and then he went to Brownington, Vermont, which is beautiful. And created a, a school there. He also was the first representative uh, Afri of African American descent yep. in the Vermont legislature. His father had fought in the Revolutionary War. It's a, he's one of these kind of people that you just can't believe all the amazing things he was able to do, and and the knowledge base, you know, yes. and coming from you know difficult times, and it's. It's a fascinating story. So he's a fascinating guy. It's a fascinating story. And I think it also sort of intertwines with Vermont's relationship to Black Lives Matter yeah. and the sort of complicated relationship of a very white state yeah. to Black Lives Matter yeah. uh, issues. So we, we wanted to go into that. And it's a beautiful place. It's, yeah. it's got a place called the Old Stone uh, House, which was the dormitory for all the students that came from yeah. all over to attend his school. And it's just a, a beautiful place. So that's our current. So we're going to have three pieces in this exhibition. Um, so yeah, I'm, we're really excited about this piece. And uh, hopefully having it done by the 23rd of September, which is his 225th birthday. Awesome. Okay, so everyone needs to go to evensteve.com and then check it out. And you said and wasn't was taken, right? So that's where you got the... Yeah, so we had the, I typed every possible permutation, and I went, okay, it's yeah. Eve and Steve, and that's going to be it. Yeah, it's yeah, not that's a, yeah. I think it's a great branding thing, and uh, definitely, and people could check you out there, and all those different things, and I appreciate you coming on, and let me know when you have a new updates on your 
your art, artwork and your continued growth of your of your online museum slash museum and uh, and I appreciate you coming by. Thank you so much. Thanks for having. Me. All right, bye bye. You're yeah. watching and listening to the Neil Haley Show. And we'll be back in just a moment. <laughs>